Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Peter Bruckner is an exercise physician and the founding partner at the Olympic Park Sports Medicine Center in Melbourne, Australia. Peter is a world-renowned medicine clinician and researcher. His most recent team appointments have been as head of sports medicine and sports science at Liverpool, Liverpool Football Club, Wow! and until 2017, the team doctor for the Australian cricket team. Peter has been published widely with a number of books, book chapters, and over 100 research articles. Peter has served two terms as the president of the Australian College of Sports Physicians, where he was instrumental in the establishment of a specialist level training program in Australia for sports medicine physicians. More recently, Peter has become interested in lifestyle issues and their relationship to health. He has become interested in the role of diet, especially a low-carbohydrate diet, in relation to both health and athletic performance. Peter has established the not-for-profit campaign Sugar by Half with the aim of reducing the intake of added sugar in Australia. He lectures regularly on these topics and has recently published a best-selling book titled A Fat Lot of Good. I met Dr. Bruckner at Low Carb Denver 2023, and it is an absolute honor to welcome him today to Balanced Body Radio. Oh, it's great to be with you, Casey. It is so great to be with you. It is uh, later in the afternoon here, which means it's early morning there. First question, we decide to invite you to our country. You come up on our stage. You know, Jeff graciously lets you make your presentation, and you have the audacity and the gall to say that our coffee is terrible. I think you called it, quote, dishwater, and you said the coffee in Melbourne is way better. Can can you justify that? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Melbourne is the uh, coffee capital of the world. We have a coffee shop on every corner, and... uh, we have real coffee, real espresso coffee. None of that sort of uh, dishwash, uh, dishwater that uh, you guys uh, serve up and call coffee. But uh, you know, it's what you call espresso. We call coffee. So that's our standard sort of coffee. We don't uh, we don't do the, uh, the dishwater stuff. So so, uh, so much richer, uh, much more flavorful. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So uh, and every, everyone is into coffee. Like you know, you meet over coffee. I mean, uh, you know, everyone just meets uh, meets for coffee every day. It's it's great. Wow, yeah. is We're that true coffee. about Melbourne? Is it really the coffee capital of the world? Is that what it's known? Yeah, well, it, it seems to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we we had a very strong uh, Italian uh, migration uh, post war in in, uh, in Melbourne, and they became very influential in in our food and our. And our our habits, our coffee habits, and so on, and uh, yeah, we've. Uh, it's it's interesting, you know. Melbourne is one of the few cities in the world where Starbucks has failed because uh, we already have so many great uh, coffee shops, you know, that uh, we didn't need Starbucks, you know. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, but they're off, you know, lots of little uh, little coffee shops and, and sort of uh, breakfast shops and uh, and things, and uh, actually, the, the the good coffee shops in New York have been set up by Australians. Oh, really? Um, a whole, a whole bunch of about a dozen uh, coffee shops in uh, in New York and now in LA and a few other cities, basically uh, established by Australians. So we we you know we don't have much influence in the world, but maybe we'll uh, we'll turn the world into coffee. That's amazing. Well, that's fantastic. I will agree with you. We're probably going to lose them as a show sponsor, but I will agree with you on Starbucks. <laughs> that is dishwater. I hate Starbucks. I can't stand it. <laughs> probably lost them as a sponsor. Uh, one more thing on Melbourne before we go. You and I got to talk in person, and I learned from you that you live or have lived. I don't know if you still do. Have lived very close to the Formula One track at Albert Park in Melbourne, close enough that you could actually hear the Formula One cars. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah, we can hear them all right. They're uh, they're so loud. I mean, it's uh, it's incredible. I mean, I'm I'm probably five k away, uh, you know, three miles away, something like that. But we still hear them really, uh, really quite loudly. You know, you know, we go out in the back uh, backyard, and uh, yeah. And um, I remember uh, uh, my son was playing a uh, cricket match, that funny game that uh, you know us colonials uh, play, and his uh, at his school, which is only about uh, or less than a k away from. Uh, from the uh, from the track, and uh, it was on the Saturday morning. Uh, the races on the Sunday, and all of a sudden they uh, they started up their practice, and you, you just couldn't you couldn't hear yourself uh, couldn't hear yourself think. And I, I've been to the race, and it, it is very loud. I mean, wow. it's incredible. Uh, you got to well, I you know you got to wear earplugs and so on. It's just sure. uh, so loud, yeah. Sure. But it's a great uh, it's a great event. It sort of takes over the whole the whole city for, for three or four days every uh, every March, and. Um, it's often the first one of the year, which makes it you know even more interesting. And uh, yeah, we have an Australian uh, you know, driver or two usually. And um, yeah, it's a great event, a really uh, really good event. The part you know, it's a real the city become comes alive. We're, we're a very big sporting city, Melbourne. Uh, you know, we have the Australian Open tennis here. We have uh, we have big golf tournaments. We have the Formula One. We have a lot of cricket and, and Australian football and, and so on. So big, uh, you know, we have crowds like tonight. Uh, the, the night we're recording this. 
Uh, there's a uh, semi-final of the uh, the Australian football, the Aussie rules football, and there'll be a hundred thousand people at the uh, at the game, wow. and uh, and then there'll be another you know half the population will be watching it on television. Wow. So uh, we love it. We love our sport in uh, in Melbourne. So uh, I guess I was born in the right city. Yeah, that sounds fantastic, man. I'm a newer Formula One fan. Like a lot of Formula One fans here in America, we got to know Formula One through Drive to Survive on Netflix. Um, and I've noticed an yeah. interesting phenomenon: the, the newer fans are so far behind in the knowledge of the space that they actually seem to like kind of catch up. It becomes an obsession. They're learning all kinds of crazy stuff that I would say some of the normal fans don't even know. Um, but I will say, like with the history of Formula One, they they've moved over time to be more sustainable, different engines that are now hybrids, they're bigger, but the noise is not the same. When you watch footage from the late 80s, the 90s with the smaller cars and those V10s, that screaming motor sound is so cool. I kind of lament that they don't still have that a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's still pretty noisy. Don't don't worry about that. Yeah, uh, that's good. But uh, yeah, Formula One's always been big in in Australia. Uh, You know, we we go way back to uh, to Jack Brabham in the the 1960s when uh, when he was a a world champion and so on. And uh, whereas uh, NASCAR and so on uh, has never been as big, you know, as big in Australia as it is here. We've always always been Formula One and the V8s is the other uh, the big thing in Australia. But uh, so you know, slightly different types of car racing, but still very popular. You know, I think in every country. Yeah, Yeah. that's great. Well, we have other reasons that we invited you on the show besides talking coffee and Formula (laughs) One. So let's get to that. You have a very interesting story of you know basically being inside your career for a majority of your career without stumbling upon some of this information later in your career that, that drastically altered the course of what you <laughs> finished your practice with and what you've been talking about since. So can you describe that for us? Yeah. Yeah. Look, as you mentioned in the, in your very kind introduction, um, I'm a sports medicine physician. So basically I, I look after, uh, Athletes, so uh, you know, big and small, and uh, good and bad, and, and you know, uh, we have a uh, have a clinic here in in Melbourne, which is the largest clinic in the country, and uh, we have lots of doctors and physical therapists and, and massage therapists and podiatrists and so on. Um, and I've worked with a lot of uh, professional teams over the years. Uh, you mentioned that I, I had a stint in uh, in Liverpool. Uh, I've worked with our Australian cricket team, which is our sort of main national team, I guess. I've done a couple of Olympics and all that sort of stuff. So my life was very wrapped up in uh, in sports medicine. Um, then about 10 years ago, I was uh, when I was actually in Liverpool, um, and um, i just turned uh, 60, and I'd – you know, if you'd asked me then, you know, was I healthy? I'd have, you know, how was I? I'd have said, yeah, yeah, I'm good. You know, I uh, I uh, ate, you know, what I thought was a good diet. I exercised regularly. Uh, you know, my blood sugars were fine. I mean, uh, you know, I'd have said, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Um, the reality was that I probably wasn't quite as uh, okay as I thought I was. Um, for a start, I had a family history of type 2 diabetes. My father had developed type 2 diabetes at the very age I was at then, and I was pretty keen not to go down that sort of a track. I was quite overweight. Uh, I was sort of borderline obese. Um, and like many uh, middle-aged men, and, and I consider 60 middle-aged, I used to think it was old, but now I think it's middle-aged, um, <laughs> I, uh, I'd i probably put on like a pound a year for, for 30 years, you know, and, and I'm sort of 30, 35 pounds uh, overweight. And, um, but yet, you know, so I thought I was eating, you know, eating a good diet and, uh, and exercising, but I kept putting on weight, you know, and getting thicker around the, around the girth and my kids are starting to sort of poke me in the, uh, in the guts and sort of say, you know, come on dad. And I'd shrug my shoulders and say, well, you know, it's not my fault. You know, I'm on a good diet and so on. I also had a couple of uh, metabolic abnormalities. I'd had a condition called fatty liver for uh, about 10 years that uh, I'm on the blood test. Um, I didn't really know what a fatty liver was. You know, I was a sports doctor, wasn't I? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know about that sort of stuff. And, um, I sort of uh, ignored it. And, uh, you know, I figured I was on a low fat diet and I'll be fine. So, I, uh, I'd had that. I had high triglycerides. I had high insulin levels. So clearly, in retrospect, I was pre-diabetic, but I, I didn't realise it at the at the time. And um, so I was just sort of, you know, blissfully uh, ignorant of uh, my my medical uh, issues. And um, then I um, I've uh, I've known uh, Tim Noakes, the South African uh, physician, for a long time. And 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 Tim uh, is someone whose intellect I'd always admired. He'd, he'd challenged a few orthodoxies in sports medicine and uh, sports science over the years and always been proven right. And he sort of came out and started talking about uh, the fact that, you know, he thought we had it all wrong in, uh, in our nutrition, that it was actually uh, sugar and processed carbohydrates that were the problem, not fat, because we've been fat-obsessed for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, really. Um 
And uh, I remember thinking at the time, oh, Tim, really, come on now. You know, <laughs> you've really uh, you know, gone too far this time. That couldn't possibly be right. You know, we couldn't possibly be all you know, been on the wrong diet for, for 50 years, you know. And uh, But I thought, geez, he's been right before. You know, I need to look into this. So I decided to do a little bit of a reading. I read uh, Gary Taubes' book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. And uh, I guess, you know, that was probably the, 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 the book that changed my life, really. I mean, um, because not only did it talk about uh, the relative advantages of fats and carbohydrates, but it, it went through the politics of how the, uh, the, the low-fat movement had won out over the low-carb movement back in the, in the 60s and 70s, which I'd always assumed was due to good science and, you know, medical evidence and so on. But, you know, as usual, it turns out to be due to money and power and politics and, and so on. And uh, this book just blew me away. I mean, uh, I remember, you know, I distinctly remember one night sitting on, on the edge of my bed in, in Liverpool and uh, thinking, no, nah, this couldn't be right. Like, this could not be right. You know, we, we couldn't have got this wrong. I mean, the whole of Western society is, is on this low-fat diet and, 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 and it's based on a fraud. And um, so anyway, I, I, I then got pretty interested in it. I dived into everything I could get my hands on, everything I could read read journal articles and papers and books. And, and uh, the more I read, the more I thought, wow, I, you know, I think I think he's right again. Tim, Tim's right again. And um, so I decided, okay, you know, it was time for a little uh, little research. You know, I'm a scientist, so I've got to do some research. But as a scientist, I also know that, you know, research with an N equals one is a waste of time, uh, except when the one is you, in which case, you know, it's very, very worthwhile doing. So I decided it was time for an N equals one experiment on myself. So I decided I'd go, I'd tackle this low-carb, healthy-fat diet that I'd been reading about. And um, so on day one, I got all my blood tested and uh, was on the scales, weighed myself, and then I launched into a low-carb, healthy-fat diet. So I took all sugar and, and processed foods out of my diet, no starches, no rice, cereal, pasta, potato, bread, all that sort of stuff, and w- went back to eating probably the way that my you know my parents and grandparents would have eaten, just real food, you know, sort of meat, fish. Uh, non-starchy veg, um, eggs, you know, all that cholesterol that we've been told about, and dairy, all that fat we've been told about, you know, all that sort of stuff. I went back to eating uh, eating that. The only fruit I had was berries. Uh, I had some nuts and seeds, and um, yeah, look, I had a couple of little indulgences, the, the odd glass of red wine. I'm not really a, a drinker, but I have the odd glass, and maybe a little uh, little square of dark chocolate occasionally. But that was about it. So I was pretty strict, uh, pretty strict for. I decided to do it for three months. So, um, so to cut a long story short, um, in that three months, I uh, the first thing I noticed was that I, I I stopped being hungry all the time. So you know, instead of sort of eating my breakfast at you know eating my cereal at eight o'clock and then getting to you know ten thirty, thinking God, it's lunchtime soon. You know, where, where's the next meal? I'd have uh, you know eggs and bacon and avocado or something for for breakfast, and I wouldn't eat it, wouldn't feel hungry again all day. And uh, so I went from eating three meals and three snacks a day to eating two meals a day. And I, I ate two meals a day to this day. And uh, I'm never hungry. And, uh, yeah, that's, that, that changed. So that was the first thing that happened. Then I started to, uh, to feel much more energetic, um, concentrated better. I felt my brain was functioning better. I slept better. I I'd had a bit of sleep apnea, and that seemed to disappear. Um, and the weight kept uh, coming off every week. I'd jump on the scales, and yeah, there'd be another, uh, another couple of pounds gone and so on. So at the end of the uh, of the three months, um, I'd lost uh, thirteen kilograms. So what's that? About twenty eight, twenty nine pounds in uh, in in thirteen weeks, um, without ever being hungry. You know, without ever really having any sort of discomfort and so on. Um, and uh, I remember sort of almost feeling guilty. You know, I thought I thought this losing weight caper was supposed to be really hard. You know, and yet. I just found it so easy. It was ridiculous. Um, and then I got my bloods done, and every one of my blood abnormalities had returned to normal. So my fatty liver that I'd had for 10 years, completely normal. Uh, triglycerides back to normal. Uh, insulin, normal. It was it just blew me away. I could not believe the results, really, that in three months I could uh, have all these effects. So, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, you, you have one or two choices then. You know, you can either sort of, keep it to yourself and sort of keep quiet and, and <laughs> just get on with your life. But I didn't really have any choice because people would come up to me and say, wow, what have you done? You know, you look completely different and so on. And I obviously didn't think I looked very good to start with. But anyway, um, 
uh, or else, you know, you, you, you become a bit of an advocate. So I started talking about it and writing about it, got invited to speak a bit. And then uh, there was started this charity that you mentioned, Sugar by Half, which was sort of, uh, you know, just basically yeah, everyone agrees on sugar. It's the one thing everyone agrees on. And uh, we figured, well, that, that's a good start. You know, let's, 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 uh, let's try and reduce the amount of sugar here. The average uh, Australian and American uh, you know, have you know, somewhere around you know, 18, 20 teaspoons of sugar a day of added sugar. Not that's, that's in addition to the sugar. That's in addition to the sugar in, in sort of you know fruit and dairy and so on. So um, you know that's crazy. And, and so we figured, well, let's have a have a target and you know, try and cut that down by half and so on. So we started this charity, which has been going well, and you know, we have a, a schools program and uh, you know and, and have a campaign and so on. And then uh, then I got approached to write a book. Um, my response to that was, uh, you know, the last thing the world needs is another diet book, but um, they convinced me that uh, there weren't too many by doctors and, and none by Australian doctors. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll write a book. So I wrote a book called The Fat Lot of Good, which was on the bestseller list for three months and uh, still selling really well. It's been remarkable. And uh, I just wrote down, I did, wrote it in three weeks. I wrote just, you know, everything I'd sort of learned over the previous sort of uh, few years, I, uh, I just put down and, and away it went. And uh, it's been good. And then I kept, you know, giving lots of talks and, and, you know, to all sorts of groups. And, you know, anyone who invites me to give a talk, I'll give a talk just to spread the, spread the word. And then we decided, well, type 2 diabetes has always been the sort of, you know, the elephant in the room, really. I mean, that's, the, I think, the biggest single health problem in, the, in, in, in our country and, and probably in yours as well. And um, no one seemed to be doing anything about it. And, and yet there was sort of good evidence uh, both in, in the UK and, and the US that uh, you know, a low carb diet can can put type two diabetes into remission, but it was almost as if the medical profession didn't want to know about it. And um, so, um, so we thought, well, let's you know, let's tackle that. And um, I initially spoke to the people from diabetes.co.uk, which has been a very successful uh, low carb program in the UK. They've had over four hundred thousand people go through their go through their program. And uh, we were going to license their their program, and that didn't didn't sort of work out. And, uh, so eventually, we thought, well, we'll have a crack ourselves. So we've set up a uh, a program called Defeat Diabetes, uh, which was initially an app, uh, and now sort of both an app and a web based program. And it really sort of uh, you know tells you everything you need to know about uh, about tackling type two diabetes from a dietary point of view, and uh, it gives you all the information, but also the practical. So we have videos, we have articles, we have Recipes, meal plans, cooking demonstrations, all that sort of stuff. We have an active Facebook group, and so on. And um, and we've uh, you know we've had about ten thousand people go through that, which is not a lot. But um, uh, remember, Australia is a pretty small population. But uh, we're slowly getting momentum, and uh, the results have been phenomenal. I mean, we've had uh, more than fifty percent of our people putting their diabetes into remission. You know, which. Uh, wow. You know, when I was a med- when I was a medical school, I was a medical student. I was told you can't do that, but um, yeah, you clearly you clearly can, and uh, and we have, and uh, and this program, and yeah, similar program to the UK one, to the Berta program in the US, um, same principles, low carb, um, lots of information, educate people, give them the tools that they that they need, and uh, and they do really well. And the fifty percent that that are not in remission have all reduced their. Uh, their blood sugars—they're not quite, you know, at that level yet where they're in remission. So, and then, uh, then most recently, I put out another book called *The Diabetes Plan*, which is basically, you know, based on that uh, that program. So, uh, so that's been busy. Um, you know, we're still struggling to to get uh, to get people on board. Unfortunately, one of the biggest impediments is the medical profession who can't understand that. Uh, I mean, it's pretty simple. You know, when you think about it, Diabetes is a disease of carbohydrate intolerance. Now, everyone agrees on that. So surely the obvious thing is to avoid carbohydrate. I mean, as my kids would say, duh. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost too obvious, um, too simple for, for doctors to, to cope with. And, and the trouble is, you know, as, as doctors, we've been hammered for you know, 30, 40, 50 years, fat, you know, fat, 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 fat. You know, it's all about fat. And you know, carbohydrates are fine and so on. And you know, we've been advising people with diabetes, a disease of carbohydrate intolerance, to eat a low fat, high carbohydrate diet. I mean, it just when you think about it, it's just crazy. All these supposedly intelligent people advising uh, you know, if they actually sat back and sort of thought about it for a minute, they'd realize it's ridiculous. 
And, you know, we're guaranteeing that people will either become diabetic or, or maintain, remain diabetic for the rest of their lives if we, uh, if we continue to feed them this stuff. I mean, just got to go to hospitals. You see the, the diabetic diet in hospitals. I mean, it's just full of sugar. You know? Oh, just have, more, you know, just have more medications, have more insulin. No. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. So I think, you know, um, yeah, type 2 diabetes is a really poorly understood and poorly managed disease. And yet it's, you know, arguably the biggest health issue in, in Western society. I mean, and, and you know, it's not, I think part of the, part of the problem, <laughs> I've got this theory, Casey, that part of the problem that why do people ignore type 2 diabetes? And it's because people don't die of type 2 diabetes, or not, not many do. They die of all the complications of type two diabetes, you know, the heart disease, and the dementia, and the and the uh, you know, the amputations, and the, and the blindness, and the kidney disease, and so on. I mean, that that's you know that's uh, the issue. So people sort of ignore the underlying problem, which is type two diabetes. Um, but you know, it, it's it's the biggest cause. You know, I mean, you know, people say that every uh, every heart attack is is an undiagnosed diabetic. You know, and wow. you know. Out, Alzheimer's is known as type three diabetes, you know, right. such as the, the link with diabetes and uh, you know amputations and and you know kidney disease are all you know, the main cause type two diabetes. And yet, you know, we've we've got the knowledge and the, and the weapons to to tackle type two diabetes, but we don't. And um, one of the other reasons we don't is that there's no money in it. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of money in diabetic drugs. You know, insulin is one of the most profitable drugs in the world, and you know. Statins are the same, you know, huge amount of uh, money. So people want us to focus on on cholesterol, not worry about sugar. Um, and uh, if you're diabetic, you just take more drugs. And um, you know, you can eat what you like, just take more drugs. Well, you know, that's that's just crazy, you know. And um, so you know, like most things in life, uh, it all you know boils down to money. And um, so it's a real battle, uh, a real battle, you know, from those of us who are trying to sort of push the. The nutrition and lifestyle and exercise and stress management and, and so on, sunshine and sleep, all really important. Um, it's a real battle to sort of uh, you know, get over the, the, the big food and the big farmer who are you know, incredibly wealthy, powerful, influential, can spend a lot of money uh, marketing their, uh, their foods. I mean, you've, you've just got to look at, uh, at breakfast cereals. You know, I mean, for a start, you know, they've convinced everyone that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I mean, there's absolutely no science behind that, but you know, it's it's a mantra. Oh yeah, you've got to have breakfast. Little Johnny's got to have breakfast before he goes off to school. You know, and then they've basically created these what they call cereals that are basically just cereal flavored sugars. I mean, they're just they're just sugar bombs. And uh, but they you know they color you know they have lovely you know bright packages with you know little. Animals and yeah, I mean they're they're fair. I mean you've got to hand it. They're very clever. I mean they're very good at they're very good at marketing, you know. And and then they pretend that they're healthy, you know. I mean they pretend that uh, I mean, you know, what you've got to remember is that the food industry has no interest in health. Its only concern is profit. So anytime they try, try and pretend to you that they're interested in health, that's nonsense. They are not interested in health. It's just money, and. Uh, and you know they, they don't care about the health of the country. You know they're prepared to to, to hit all these. You know, they they know the foods are not healthy. Of course they do. You know, but they've they've got their marketing and they've got their arguments and that and they've got everyone convinced that uh, a lot of these foods and, and you know when I see the term low fat, I run a mile because I know low fat means high sugar. You know, and they you know we were told to stop eating fat. You know, 30, 40, 50 years ago based on fraudulent uh, research. Um, and, uh, and so the food industry took the uh, the fat out of food. Uh, then they realised they had a problem because all the flavour had gone. So they thought, okay, we'll uh, we'll substitute sugar. So as soon as you see low fat, you instantly read high sugar. And uh, so we've been on this low fat, high sugar diet for 30, 40, 50 years, and it's been and 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 it's an experiment really. There's no there's no evidence to show that it works. So we've been on this massive worldwide experiment for 30, 40 years. And the results have been a disaster. Not you know, we just got fatter and sick. We got fatter and sicker for thirty or forty years, and yet no one is sort of saying, "Hang on a minute, you know, maybe we're doing something wrong here." It just, it just defies logic. It's very hard to understand until you realise, you know, the powerful forces that are that are behind it, and and basically governments are captured by uh, by big business, and the dietary guidelines are uh, are corrupt. You know, they're uh, 
the people on the dietary guidelines, uh, making the dietary guidelines, and many of them have links to the food industry, and uh, which they don't admit. And so, you know, there, there's there's a lot of problems, but you know, we've got to tackle it. We've, we've got to, you know, we've got to have a crack. Well, that that's amazing. I, I I'm gonna go to something that Nina Teicholz told us last time we interviewed her, where she said, like, next time you're driving around your town, look around. What is the nicest, newest building? It is always a dialysis center or a cancer center or an add-on to the hospital. Like, if you want to know where the money's going, it's right in front of you. It's going to those types of things. And and another story that that um, Gary Taubes told us, I I, I really want to tell. You were talking about this should be like, um, this should be common knowledge. You should be able to figure this out. And he told a story. I'm not sure if it was somebody he knew personally or not. Um, and I can't remember if it was type one or type two diabetes, but th this guy didn't know much about health. He's being told by his doctor that he was a diabetic now. And so that he needs to eat the carbohydrates and then take insulin afterwards. And so the guy is listening to this and he stops the doctor and he says, wait a second, doctor. So you're telling me that carbohydrates are now a poison to me. So I should eat the poison and then take the antidote afterwards. Like what if I just don't eat the poison? And the doctor was like, man, no, you're not going to want to do that. It's going to be too hard for you to not have the carbohydrates. You're going to feel like you're, you're not enjoying life very much. It's like, this is absolutely ridiculous. Like you should know that if you're allergic to carbohydrates because you're diabetic, you need to get off of them. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if, if they can work it out, you know, why can't the medical profession work it out? You know, because, uh, you know, and, and part of the problem, Casey, is that uh, doctors know nothing about nutrition. You know, the, the 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 average patient assumes the doctor knows about nutrition. We know nothing about nutrition. We're not taught nutrition. I did not have a single lecture on nutrition. I had on biochemistry and so on, but I didn't have anything on actual food in my in my medical course. Now that was a few years ago now, but um, you know, I don't think things have changed much. So you know, so doctors, you know, you, in, in in a way you can't sort of blame them in, in that you know you stay in your comfort zone. And and for for doctors, you know, our comfort zone is is, is pharmaceuticals and, and surgery and, and so on. So you know, we'd rather recommend someone have bariatric surgery for their obesity than uh, than reduce carbohydrates. You know, I mean, it's just madness. You know, but um, it's what we know and what we understand. And uh, and uh, you know, very slowly there are some doctors coming around to you know to understand nutrition, but it's a very slow process. And, uh, you know, and, and people like, you know, the, the two you mentioned, Gary Taubes and Nina Teichholz, neither of whom are doctors. That's right. You know, are leading, leading the way in educating us, uh, the medical profession and others, and, and full credit to them. They're both uh, amazing people who've done that and continue to do a fantastic job. They're, uh, they're my heroes in many ways. You know, they're incredible. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Journalists, engineers, citizen scientists, people are learning about this from the ground level. So that's amazing. I've asked this question probably a hundred times on this show. I get lots of different answers. Just curious, your thoughts. Should we be educating doctors more about nutrition or should we not? Because the same education they're going to get is just going to further ingrain them into the wrong things. <laughs> Well, it depends what you're educating them about. You know, if you're educating them the the, the, the real truth about nutrition, great. But uh, you know, the problem is that uh, you know the dietitians and the dietary guidelines, you know, uh, have got it all wrong. So if they're the ones doing the educating, if they're telling them all all that you know to avoid fat and uh, and to eat lots of uh, you know complex carbohydrates and so on, then uh, then yeah, you know, that's not doing anyone a favour. But if we could actually teach them the right stuff. You know, and and the general, you know, just the obvious stuff that uh, that that carbohydrate is is not good if you're uh, if you're insulin resistant, you're a diabetic. You know, you you should avoid carbohydrates. I mean, you know, we we certainly should be uh, should be teaching them that. Um, but uh, yeah, as I said, it's starting at a very low base. They don't really understand. Doctors don't understand nutrition, and um, and they just follow the guidelines. And, and so, one of the most important things, and that's and Nina's been very big on this, is is tackling the dietary guidelines. I mean, that's her passion at the moment is to try and get uh, get some science into the dietary guidelines. I mean, uh, because they're ignoring the science. You know, you've just got to, you know, you keep hearing. Uh, we've heard it for years, haven't we? Haven't we? You know, the, the last few years, follow the science. You know, which probably didn't happen <laughs> during COVID either. But uh, that's another story. But um, uh, you know, you've you've got to follow the uh, follow the science in nutrition and the science. You know. It, it's just so frustrating because it's so obvious. You know, it's so obvious to to those who haven't got the sort of the ingrained biases and so on. You know, like the, the, the patient of you know that Gary Thomas was talking about. You know, I mean, this logic tells you 
that um, if you're intolerant of something, you avoid it. I mean, if you're you know if you're if you're gluten intolerant, you avoid gluten. You know, if if you if you have a peanut allergy, you avoid peanuts. I mean, if you're carbohydrate intolerant, avoid carbohydrates. It's not that hard. One of the things that the other thing that annoys me, Casey, is that people are always saying, "Oh, it's too hard. It's not sustainable. You can't you can't do it." And the interesting thing is, the only people who say that are people who've never tried it. That's right. Especially doctors. Doctors love saying that. Oh, no, it's too hard. You can't do it. <clears throat> well, try it. Because, yeah, you know, that's it, a little bit uh, difficult at times. But the reason it's sustainable, and whereas, you know, all other diets, you know, like the low-calorie low diet and so on, is just not sustainable. The reason is because you feel so good, you know, and it's it, you, you lose weight, you feel so much, you know, so much more energy, you, you feel great. And, um you know that's uh, you know that that's why it is sustainable, and that's why the only people who say it's not sustainable are the ones who haven't uh, haven't tried that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've been fairly strict carnivore for four and a half years now, and I know if I go off of it, my anxiety comes back. And it's maybe not terrible anxiety compared to somebody who has a serious mental disorder, but it's bad enough that makes me say, like, desserts aren't really that tasty. I can avoid them, and it's okay. Some people can moderate. I'm not that great at it, so I have to be a little bit more on the abstaining side. But yeah, there's ways that people can do this. I like how you've talked about in the past. For a lot of people out there, it's not even that they have to be, like, a strict ketogenic. It could be somewhere, just reduce the carbohydrates. You don't need that many of them, if any, you really don't even need to take them in at all. But if you're going to have some, at least make sure they're a little bit lower. You mentioned frustration. I think that's a good word. And I really wanted to ask you this, going back to when you were first learning about this again, you know, later part of your career, you've done amazing work since then. It's, it's cool to think about since turning 60, you know, you, you mentioned fighting the fight and, and, you know, being on the battlefield, look at all the cool things you've done in the later part of your career. But do you ever reflect back on what your career could have been like with, you know, the people you worked with, injuries, um, you know, do you ever reflect on what that would have been like had you known that information at the beginning of your career? No, absolutely. Absolutely. I feel embarrassed. I feel feel guilty that I've been giving people wrong advice for, for the, you know, the previous 30 years and so on. Um, or maybe that's maybe that's that that guilt that makes me what so passionate about uh, you know about changing things uh, things now. I mean uh, yeah, I mean I you know I just I think, you know, like a lot of doctors, I think, you know, you sort of put your brain into, into neutral, you know, once you graduate from medical school and you stop thinking, you know, you're so busy just, uh, you know, running your life and running your practice and, and so on. And uh, you don't ever stop to sort of think, you know, to challenge ideas. And it's quite interesting because, um, you know, since I've sort of, uh, you know, discovered that, that, you know, everything we've been taught about nutrition is wrong, you know, I start to challenge everything in medicine now. You know, I've become a real sort of real skeptic. You know, I said, well, you know, okay, just because we've been doing that for, for 30, 40, 50 years, uh, is that, you know, is that necessarily uh, correct and so on? So, yeah, I've, uh, I've become uh, I've become a little bit of a bit of a skeptic. So, yeah, look, it, it's it's very strange. And, um, you know, it's uh, both from my own health, you know, I wish I'd discovered this 30 years you know, earlier and I'm sure I'll be a lot healthier than uh, than, than I am now. Um, and same with, you know, with my father. I mean, I wish I'd, you know, he, uh, he had a pretty miserable last, you know, few years of his life from his diabetes. You know, I only wish I'd known when he was diagnosed, you know, that, that I could have, uh, helped him and so on. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I do feel, feel frustrated and, and disappointed in myself in a way that, that I didn't, uh, didn't discover this, but, um, I guess, yeah, I'm just trying to make up for lost time. Yeah, well, you understand the difference between fault and responsibility. I don't necessarily think it's your fault that you weren't exposed to this information earlier. It wasn't there. You were in the prime time of them pushing, you know, high-carbohydrate, low-fat diets. That was the best thing any of us could have done. You mentioned, you know, the dialysis center and, you know, treating diabetes and the, the cafeteria food. I look back with my mom you know, was treating cancer and we would bring her all kinds of sugary crap, let alone all the sugar crap she had available there. Like terrible idea. That's like the worst thing you could possibly do. And so again, I, I don't feel like it's anybody's fault that we were all taught this thing, but you understood and took responsibility and, and changed course. Very similar to Tim Noakes. I mean, didn't he famously like rip out that chapter of his own book, like Laura of running that talked all about carbohydrates. Running? Yeah. 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 No, he's, he's, uh... He's a great man, Tim, and uh, he's a super smart guy. And, and you know, I really admire his. Uh, his yeah, I'm fortunate. I've known Tim for a long time. We, you know, we were on the same sort of uh, 
speaker circuit for many years of the sports medicine, sports science. And, you know, we'd, we'd always sort of find a corner to sort of talk about uh, rugby and cricket, you know, while all you guys were talking about <laughs> baseball and, and NFL and so on. So uh, we're, uh, we're, we're good mates. But, uh, yeah, I really admire what he's done. And he went through a lot of, a lot of crap, uh, you know, with people trying to take him down in South Africa and, and so on. And, and he came out on top and he won every battle. And uh, it wasn't easy. It was an incredibly stressful couple of years for him. And uh, he won that battle and, uh, and and full credit to him because uh, he's still doing a great uh, a great job today. So, yeah, you know, the rest of us have just got to uh, continue on his legacy, you know, keep keep, keep uh, doing what he's been doing and, uh, and helping him as much as we can. So it, it's, uh, yeah, it's obviously a passion of, of mine. The interesting thing is that... Um, I'm finding more and more young doctors are getting interested in this uh, in this area. You know, young graduates and so on. They've discovered low carb for themselves. So a lot of the time, you know, the way you you, you know you change your mind is, is from your own experience. And uh, and a lot of uh, you know the, the sort of the low carb, you know, ketogenic uh, type uh, uh, diet is becoming uh, you know more and more popular and more and more people interested in it. And, and yeah, so uh, I think there is hope that you know there's a there's a new generation of uh, have doctors who are challenging uh, older ideas and, and uh, have had their own experiences and so on. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, the, the whole world doesn't have to be ketogenic. You know, I mean, uh, sure, you know, if you're, you know, morbidly obese or got type 2 diabetes, you know, out of control or whatever, you know, it probably helps to be ketogenic for a while anyway to get you know, get your everything under control. But, you know, most people do well on just a low-carb sort of uh, approach. Um I always say there's a the right amount of carbs for everyone, you know, and it really depends on uh, on your degree of insulin resistance and 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 so on. And you know, it's a bit of a bit of experiment. Uh, you've got to find out what's the right amount for you. You know, like in my own experience, I went really hard for that first three months, got everything sort of uh, under control, got all my metabolic health issues sorted, and then I backed off a little bit. You know, I was probably ketogenic for those first three months. I didn't actually ever measure. I don't you know, count carbs or anything like that. Some people like doing that, but. I just uh, just avoid them, and um, but nowadays, you know, I'll, I'll have a bit of sourdough bread, or I'll have some, you know, berries, or I'll have some, you know, uh, if I'm if I'm in someone's house and they serve up a nice dessert, I'm not going to uh, knock it back. But you know, ninety ninety eight percent of the time, I'm uh, I'm low carb and, and and very happy with it, and I enjoy my food. You know, that the other thing is, people think you know you you stop enjoying your food. Well, I mean, I I enjoy every meal I have. You know, I mean, you know, I have two meals a day, and in the morning I'll I'll have you know. Eggs and, uh, and and bacon and avocado and, and maybe mushroom or tomato or something, or else I'll have, you know, a, a full fat Greek yogurt with with nuts and seeds and berries and and, and so on. I mean, yeah, that can't be bad. And, and then in the evening I'll have you know meat or uh, or fish and uh, and some veggies and and you know if I'm still hungry I'll have some berries and cream. You know, I mean, yeah, it's not a bad way to uh, you know. <laughs> Not a bad way to eat, really. You, know, you don't have to feel sorry. For really, really <laughs> suffering. I'm so sorry. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. Terrible. It's real, real tough. You, you know, know the <laughs> eggs and bacon. I'm. Uh, my heart goes out. It's just so so difficult. The struggle is real. Um. So we really. Well, have- it's just so sad that it's just so sad that for you know for 30, 40 years eggs were demonized. You know, and demonized because of cholesterol and and. And even Ansel Keys, you know, the the, the person who screwed all this up years ago, he said right from the start that the cholesterol in your food makes no difference to your blood cholesterol. So we've known this for years, and yet people kept propagating this myth. Why? You know, why would they do that? I mean, it's incredible. And so many, you know, all those egg white omelets, oh, my God, you know, poor people having to eat those, you know, I mean, all the good stuff's in the yolk, you know. And um, eggs are, you know, I think probably the single you know, healthiest, most nutritious food you can you can have. And you know, I try and have you know two or three eggs every day, you know, and uh, you know I don't think you can have too many eggs to be honest. Uh, you know I think they're they're fantastic. They're, they're relatively cheap. They're accessible. You know I mean um, you can have them. You know all sorts of different ways. I mean, and yet for so long, you know they were demonised. I mean just madness. You know and just and there's still you know there's still a lot of people out there who think that eggs are bad for you. I mean yep. just crazy. I'm so glad to hear that um, there there can't be maybe too many eggs. I just had eight for my first meal of the day at two thirty p.m. So I'll, I'll feel I'll feel good about that. That's great. Um, okay, so we, we absolutely have to ask you about sports. So you you had some time that you were able to integrate this into what you were doing, working with all those teams. You had some amazing stories that you shared with us at Low Carb Denver. Um, we always think athletics and performance. We think Gatorade, sports drinks. We lost another show sponsor right there. You know the goose and the gel. 
gels and all that kind of stuff. What, how, how can we integrate a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet for somebody who is either performing at the highest levels or just for the rest of us kind of normal schlubs that just really want to bike a little faster or run a little faster or do our day-to-day activities a little better? Yeah, look, you're absolutely right. I mean, we've had you know, been had the carb generation really. You know, it's just been carbs, carbs, carbs for uh, for athletes, and uh, and we've been uh, convinced that that's the only or it's the best fuel for uh, for athletes. And, and certainly, carbs are a good fuel. There's no doubt about it for for athletics. But um, there's a few issues with uh, w- with that. I mean, uh, for, firstly, is, is fats are a good alternate food. Alternate fuel. You know, you can fuel very well. You know, except probably at the very highest level of sport. You can do everything you want to do on uh, on a low carb, yeah, healthy fat diet. You know, if you're uh, if you want to run a you know a, a three hour marathon or three and a half hour marathon, you know, you can do that on no carbs. You know, uh, you can do an Ironman on no carbs. You can do endurance sport on on no carbs because fat is a very good fuel. Um, but um, probably the only exception is really high intensity sport. Um, you know that uh, I'll often have uh, people say to me that. Uh, you know, they um, they might be a cyclist and, and you know a high level cyclist, and they said, "Look, we're fine on, on fueling ourselves with fat, except when we need to sprint or climb or something like that. We feel we just need some carbs to top up." So, so there's been a lot of debate in the in the, the dietary world about fats versus carbs, what's the best fuel, and so on. <clears throat> and um, and it's certainly swinging uh, away from carbs on towards fats, um, particularly in the ultra endurance world. So. You know, there's crazy people who do 100-mile runs and, you know, Zach Bitter is the world 100-mile record holder and so on. It's just a, a, a low-carb uh, athlete and so on. So more and more, they're, uh, they're switching to, uh, to low-carb because they're not exercising at that really high intensity that you need carbs for uh, and they can fuel uh, with fat. And there's, there's some distinct advantages to using fat as a fuel, okay? So one is that um, <clears throat> it lasts a lot longer. You know, you mentioned the, the the Gatorades and the goos and the gels and so on. You know, when you're running, you know, you're having to continually top up your uh, your carbohydrates, and uh, and that plays havoc with your gut and uh, and can be very inconvenient and so on. Um, whereas if you're fueling yourself from fat, you don't need to. You've got plenty of fat. You know, even the skinniest person has enough fat to fuel them for hours. Um, so you don't. I mean, I've had people do ten hour Ironman triathlons on on no breakfast or no food, just water. You know, and they've been perfectly okay. Um, so, you know, you can use fat as a fuel. Um, the thing is, you know, we obviously have these two fuel systems, you know, carbs and, and fats. Uh, you can get a bit from protein, but let's just leave protein out of it for the moment. <clears throat> the body will always use carbs preferentially. If there's carbs around, the body will fuel itself on fats, on, on carbs. But if you deprive the body of carbs, it will then switch you know, like from petrol to diesel, it'll switch from carbs to fats and use fats as a fuel. As I said, it can be very effective, um, you know, for anything but but super high intensity. And um, so you don't have to keep uh, refueling the whole time. You don't have all the long-term health issues of, uh, of high carbohydrate and high sugars. I mean, we've had a whole generation of endurance athletes who've had massive amounts of sugars, you know, carbohydrates in the form of simple sugars, and uh, they're, you know, a lot of them are going to be insulin resistant. A lot of them are going to have cardiac issues down the down the track as a result of the, of that. And uh, that's a real concern I have. You know, we we hear a lot about retired athlete endurance athletes having heart problems and so on, and people say, oh, it's the strain on their heart. Well, you know, I think it's actually the, uh, the the fuel they've been they've been putting in. So I think that's an issue that that's really important. Um, you also you recover much better when you're uh, using fat as a fuel. So sugars and, and carbohydrates are very inflammatory in the, in nature, and, and you get muscle soreness. And, you know, for instance, you know, I had a chronic Achilles tendon problem. You know, that every day, every morning, I would get out of bed and you'd, oh, you'd hobble around because of your Achilles tendon. About three, four weeks into the uh, into changing my diet, I suddenly thought, hang on a minute, I can't feel my Achilles tendon anymore. And you know, no problems with Achilles tendon since then. So that's inflammation, and uh, and. You know, I've had a lot of patients who've uh, had arthritis or had uh, tendonitis or something like that, change their diet and uh, and their inflammation goes. So that's another advantage to having a, uh, a low-carb, uh, healthy-fat diet if you're an athlete. Um, 
So, you know, and then you recover better. You know, you recover better from a hard session if you haven't got uh, got sugar on board and, and you're all inflamed and so on. And recovery is a really important aspect of, of athletic performance because you want to you know, be able to get back in training as quickly as possible uh, after, a, after a race or after an event. So there's a lot of advantages to uh, – <clears throat> To switching from carbs to to fats uh, as a as a fuel. What are the disadvantages? <clears throat> well, as I said, I think you know at, at really high levels, people you know people need. So I've had elite athletes who are completely ketogenic, but then I've also had some who've uh, who are largely low carb, but you know need top ups. You know, so this concept of of train low, compete high has become quite popular. So you basically train as a low carb, you know, during the week. Um, and uh, but when you really have a, a, an intense session, you might have a race or a, or a football match or something like that. You'll have some carbs prior to uh, prior to and during that uh, for high intensity. But it's a lot of individual variation. As I said, some people are fine on on 100% ketogenic. Others are, uh, are you know need need significant amount of carbs. It's a matter of trial and error. But there are a lot of athletes now there who are out there who are basically low carb in their in their nutrition. And just top up every uh, every now and then when they need that extra fuel. So things are changing in the nutrition world, certainly, and um, it's quite exciting. Uh, it's quite exciting to see. One thing, one p- word of warning though: don't change your whole nutrition uh, plan the week before you're running the uh, the Boston Marathon. You know, do it in the off season. It takes a while to have your body to adapt to this new uh, new way of uh, of fueling your yourself, and and particular. You know, you you have this sort of uh, keto flu that they talk about. You know, the first couple of weeks you uh, you uh, switch from uh, from carbohydrate fueling to, to fat fueling, you might feel a bit flu like and so on. We think that's largely because of lack of salt. So you really need to pump the uh, the salt and the electrolytes uh, in in that uh, in that period because you know when you go uh, low carb, you, you stop eating all salt because basically we, the salt we get at the moment is all in processed food. If you don't eat processed food. You don't eat uh, any salt, so you have to add salt to your uh, to your food, to your food and uh, and your drink. So, uh, um, but uh, you know, as I said, there are a lot of athletes out there now, particularly endurance and ultra endurance athletes, who are doing really well on a uh, on a low carb, high fat diet. Yeah, you you took the next question that I was going to ask and answered it for us, which is great. Like, what if there's a an Ironman triathlete out there that's thinking, like, wow, this sounds amazing. I'm going to do this because my event's coming up in two weeks. And it's like, mm, nope, stay the course, do what you're doing for now. <laughs> Remember how your body feels as you're taking on three to four hundred grams or car- calories of carbohydrates per hour on the bike and on the run, and contrast it how you're going to feel next year. And that's when we're going to actually tackle that. And I love that you mentioned the diesel and the petrol. I think that's a really important distinction. And I'll sometimes use a comparison to say like, what if you had, um, what if you had a truck that was carrying full petrol in the back gallons and gallons and gallons had, had tons, but was running on diesel and ended up running out of gas. Wouldn't it be so unfortunate that that engine couldn't burn both. It couldn't access the petrol because you've got all the petrol you could ever need. You could cross the globe five times if you wanted, (laughs) but, but since the engine is not adapted to that, it's not going to be able to burn that. So quite ironic that you would be able to run out of fuel, even though you're carrying a whole tanker full of fuel. Yeah, exactly. You know, we all have a lot of even the skinniest person, even you. You know, you're, you're obviously very, you know, very uh, well, uh, you know, skinny and, and healthy and so on. But uh, you know, you, you still have plenty of fat on board. We all have plenty of fat, you know, to use as fuel, and uh, we're never going to run out of uh, fat. You know, so uh, um, yeah, I think it's a great, uh, it's a great fuel. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's hard because we've all been, you know, uh, indoctrinated, I guess, into the into the carbs is uh, is best and. Uh, and then certainly, you know, as I said, the elite athletes are a different uh, kettle of fish. You know, they're, they're probably going to have – but no one needs to have as many carbs as we used to have. You know, all the crazy stuff we used to do, you know, pasta parties the night before the marathon and, and you know, huge amounts of uh, sugary drinks and so on. I mean, you know, I, I think those days are gone. You know, we, we don't need to do that. You can certainly, you know, live a healthy sort of, uh, you know, and do some good solid training on, on a low-carb, uh, healthy fat diet and then maybe just top up for uh, on race day. I totally agree. Okay, on that note, something that you've written about, something that Tim Noakes has written extensively about, you mentioned something that kind of alluded to it earlier with with salt. This, speaking of indoctrination, this this will not die. It never goes away. I don't know where it came from, but it just will not die, and it has to die. The amount of water that you should be drinking in a day eight glasses or a gallon or you know, at least a half a gallon or make sure you're drinking, you know, this size water bottle every two hours or whatever. It won't go away, dude. What is, 
what is the right amount of water that we all should be drinking? <laughs> well, for uh, a few thousand years, we, uh, we used to drink when we were thirsty. And we seemed to go pretty well with that. That seemed to work all right. You're kidding. That's uh, all we did? We didn't measure out exactly uh, the right quantity? No, funny, uh, no, funny about that, wasn't it? Yeah, oh. we, just, uh, we just drank what, uh, yeah, what, when we were thirsty. And, um, and again, you know, it's, it's the marketing business, you know, no, you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to, you've got to fuel, you've got to fluids all the time. You've got to drink, 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 you know, all this sort of stuff. There's no science that says you've got to have eight glasses or eight or, you know, a gallon or, or there's no science that says that, but yet it's become sort of part of folklore. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, cereals for breakfast or, you know, you've got to have breakfast. I mean, you know, these are just marketing tools, you know, and, and, and we've all been conned. I mean, we're, you know, they're, they're very clever, these people. They're much smarter than we are. You know, they, they know how to manipulate public opinion and, uh, and so on. So, you know, I, I drink when I'm thirsty, you know, I mean, uh, it, it's, you know, it's crazy that this constant sort of uh, drinking and you spend your whole life peeing it out and, uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, there, there's no evidence really that we need as much fluid as, as we, we think, you know. And then this whole uh, salt thing, you know, I mean, everyone's been crazy about, uh, about you know, no salt, you know, we, but we're focused on the wrong white crystal. I mean, it's not salt that's a problem, it's sugar that's a problem, you know. And um, ironically, you know, when you – when you go on a low carb diet, you know you a you don't need as much uh, much salt because um, uh, the kidney uh, kidney conserves it, and um, uh, yeah, you know you just add I just add salt to my to my food, and uh, and that's fine, you know. So um, which is what you know what I used to do when I was a kid, you know. And then we were told no 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 salt, you know, salt's bad for you, and so on. I mean, the the, the science says that extremely low intakes of salt and extremely high intakes of salt are detrimental to your health. But there is a massive sort of middle ground that uh, virtually everyone's intake of salt is covered under that is perfectly okay health-wise. And uh, this nonsense about uh, salt for uh, for blood pressure and so on, I mean, you know, at the most it might make a difference of one point in your blood pressure or two points in your blood pressure. I mean, it really is not the, uh, not the problem. Um, in fact, you'll do much better getting off sugar and carbohydrates for your blood pressure than you will getting off salt. Absolutely. And uh, you know, there's clear evidence of that. You know, so, you know, again, the wrong white crystal we've been demonizing. Yep, absolutely. So it, it is funny to reflect on the thought that it like really wasn't that many years ago that the concept of like a, a, a somebody's going to sell me a bottle of water. That wasn't that long ago. And I remember the jokes that people were saying, like, they're selling water in a bottle. Are they going to start selling us air next? Like, well, they probably will at some point, we should all admit. So it is, it is ridiculous. It might be a bit of a marketing thing for sure. Can you talk a little bit about where that crosses over into becoming actually very dangerous? Like when you see a marathon that's being run in a hot climate and they've got rest stops every mile with tons of water. What, what is, what makes you worry about that? Well, I mean, drinking a, a huge amount of uh, plain water without any electrolytes, without any uh, sodium or, or potassium can be very dangerous. Um, and, uh, and, and in fact, our, our friend Tim Noakes was one of the people who described this, uh, this condition called uh, hyponatremia. So natremia is sodium. So hypo is, is low, so low sodium. And uh, and before we really understood it, there were some deaths in uh, in uh, marathons and long distance events from uh, from people who, and it was tended to be the slower runners um, who were drinking lots of water along the way and uh, with no salt, and uh, and they would collapse, uh, you know, at the finish line. And people thought, oh, they're dehydrated, so they'd pump them with more water, and um, and that was the last thing they wanted. What their problem was was that they their sodium levels had become so diluted. That uh, that they stopped uh, functioning. As I said, there were some uh, very tragic uh, circumstances until Tim Noakes and others realised that uh, no, the problem was uh, was lack of sodium, and uh, so we encourage people to not just uh, drink plain water if they're going on a uh, you know lengthy sort of run. I mean, yeah, short distances fine, you know, but uh, you know if you're running a marathon, two, three, four hours, you know. You don't want to be having plain water. You want to be having uh, electrolytes as well, sodium and potassium, really important. And then if people do collapse at the end of a marathon, always think about the, the fact that it might be low sodium rather than uh, than dehydration and uh, actually pump them full of, uh, full of sodium and uh, they'll do much better. Much better. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that. I think it's an important message to get out there. Um, what are you working on for the future? You don't really seem to be slowing down at all. <laughs> um, you're not very good at being uh, retired. No, well- <laughs> 
No, no, I'm not very good. I wish I was. You know, look, I'd be very happy just to sort of, uh, you know, I've got this uh, this whole library of books here that yeah. I'd love to spend time reading and uh, and you know watching sport and doing all that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, maybe maybe one day. But uh, no, look, <clears throat> I, I guess you know I'm trying to make a difference and I'm trying to uh, particularly tackle the, the type two diabetes. We've actually got a uh, a uh, parliamentary inquiry into diabetes at the moment, and uh, in Australia, and, uh, and I've made a submission to that, and I've spoken to a number of the members of Parliament uh, about that, and I'm appearing before that uh, that committee next uh, in a couple of weeks' time, and so on. So we're hoping that uh, you know we can have some effect on, uh, on on making government more aware of, uh, of the importance of diet in, uh, in in type two diabetes. So yeah, so th- I guess that's my main focus is our Defeat Diabetes program. Uh, you know, we think it's a really good uh, really good program. Um, it doesn't cost much money. We're not trying to make any money out of it. We just want to cover our costs. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the more people that we can get onto that program, uh, we're doing a research study at the moment at uh, the university here uh, looking at how effective it is. And it's already been shown to be the early results are very positive. And, and we know that, you know, other people have done similar sort of things. It's not, uh, we're not the first people to show that a, that a low carb approach works for a type two diabetes, but, uh, we just want to show that our program uh, works as well as all, as all the others. So I guess that's my passion. You know, we've got uh, <clears throat> 2 million Australians. We only have 25 million people in, in Australia. You know, we have 2 million people with type 2 diabetes and another wow. 2 million with, with pre, pre-diabetes. Wow. And the numbers are just getting more and more. And, um, you know, someone's got to do something about it. So there's a group of us who are... And, uh, it's frustrating, um, but, uh, you know, sometimes you feel as though you're bashing your head against a brick wall. But... Uh, then someone, you know, sends you an email saying, you know, oh, thank you, you've changed my life, you know, I'm not diabetic anymore. And you think, okay, I'll keep going for another day or two. Yeah. No, that's amazing. I was just thinking, earlier you mentioned, you know, the 10,000 people mm-hmm. that that you've already helped as far as the app goes. But like you told us before, the N of one, if we just get rid of all of those zeros, you have a number one and that's one life. And all the people around that one life is benefited. That's worth it, man. Like that's a huge thing that you're doing. And so I love all the work that you're doing and and how busy you're staying and all the things you're you're getting out to the people, which is absolutely wonderful. Where would you like people to go to find you and connect with, with you and your work? Well, probably the best place is defeatdiabetes.com.au. Um, then you can read all about our, our program. And uh, and then if uh, you've got, you know, you uh, family or, or uh, others who want to sign up, then uh, then you can do that. It's uh, it's very cheap and uh, and it'll be it'll make a difference. It'll change your life. That's amazing. Okay, we'll link that in the show notes, Dr. Peter Berkner. This has been an amazing conversation. It was so fun to hear your presentation, which was wonderful in Denver, and to meet you and chat with you in person has been wonderful. And to meet to, to chat with you today has been awesome as well. So thank you so very much for everything you've done in your career and for sharing that message so so well. <laughs> it's just really inspiring. So thank you so very much for all of your work and thank you for making time to be on our show today. We appreciate you. No, thanks for having me. It's been uh, been good fun. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Casey. Absolutely. Me too. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. I know I say this all the time, but I really do mean it. It has been such a joy to make and produce this podcast and to watch it grow. Our business started in the pandemic in July of 2020, and we started the podcast in October of 2020. So it has been three years now, and to see that we have generated over 400,000 downloads worldwide is just simply unbelievable to me. This year in particular has been such a blast to travel to different health conferences and not only meet some of our amazing guests, but also to meet many of you, our listeners and supporters. We really just can't thank you enough. As always, feel free to book a complimentary 30-minute session on our website, which is myboundlessbody.com. On our homepage, there is a book now button where you can find a time to speak with us about health, fitness, nutrition, whatever you like. We've loved chatting with people all over the world and many of you out there to bounce ideas off each other or to try to come up with plans to achieve specific goals. Or even if it's just to reach out to introduce yourselves, we would just love to meet you and connect with you there. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel if you'd like to watch these full interviews. And also 
the shorter interviews on more specific topics that are taken from these full interviews. We've gotten really good feedback over there. It's also a really fun way to interact with people who comment, we read, and reply to every single YouTube comment we get. So head on over there if you want to start a conversation and watch these um, videos. As always, if you haven't already, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple. It really is the best way to make sure this podcast gets out there to more listeners. We've been able to keep Boundless Body Radio ad-free for three years and really want to continue to do so. And so your five-star ratings and reviews are the best way to support us at Boundless Body and support the podcast. Cheers. Thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.